Two and a Half Admins, episode 56. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, your customary plug, Alan, is understanding ZFS channel programs. Yeah, uh, so channel programs are a very interesting feature in ZFS where you can basically construct little Lua scripts to perform multiple interactions as a single transaction. So normally, if you want to create a snapshot and then rename something and do two or three different things, each of those would be a separate transaction that where you'd have to wait for a flush in between. And so it means certain series of operations might take rather a long time uh, because you have to wait for the all the stuff to flush out every time. Whereas with a channel program, it's all done as one transaction. It also means that if any part of it fails, you can just stop and none of it happened. For you DBA types out there, think ACID compliant file system, basically. Yeah. This is for the administrative parts of it. So it's not actually for writing to a file or something, but all the administrative operations, you can perform a series of administrative operations with, yes, like a start transaction, do a bunch of shit, end transaction. Right. Well, link in the show notes as usual. Let's do some news then. And the first one is yet another major Azure vulnerability. Yeah, uh, the same folks that discovered the uh, Chaos DB vulnerability where basically anybody with a Cosmos DB instance could uh, get root, for lack of a uh, better, more succinct term, on anybody else's Cosmos DB instance. This time around, it's an issue with a little-known service called OMI, which is basically kind of a Linuxy version of WMI, Windows Management Infrastructure. Turns out if you enable logging or any of several other attractive-looking services in Azure's web UI, it would um, pretty much silently install this service inside your Linux VMs. And in some configurations, the service would only listen on a you know a local Unix socket, but in quite a few of them, it would open a network socket and it would bind an HTTPS server to TCP 5986 that listened for commands given in a SOAP protocol. Now, the thing about that is, for one thing, it binds to all interfaces, not just the private network interface, you know, within Azure. And another is that this service can actually directly accept commands to be executed by the service, which runs as root. Obviously, you're supposed to authenticate to the service in order to do that. And in fact, if you authenticate as a user and you get the password wrong, it will refuse to run the command because you got everything wrong, right? But guess what happens if you just omit the entire stanza that identifies you as a particular user with a particular password? Just don't put it in at all. Hooray! You're root! Let me perform your command as root! That was literally, you know, all there was to it. So the only real good news about this is that um, Azure does have an outside the VM firewall on by default that would not allow access to that particular port. The bad news there is that there's no way there weren't a lot of people that got frustrated with that and just added an allow all rule. And if you did that, then congratulations, your OMI instance was exposed to the entire internet. Even without doing that, your OMI instance is exposed to all of the other VMs that you have in the same network segment, which means if you're an enterprise and you are like, hey, distributed logging, remote management, all that stuff sounds good, you know, let me go ahead and enable that. Not only does anybody who gets a toehold on one of your VMs get an instant local privilege escalation over OMI, they get lateral movement and escalation to root on all of the VMs in that segment via OMI. And Microsoft dragged their feet a little bit on this, didn't they? Yeah, they did. So when Wiz reported these vulnerabilities, there were four total vulnerabilities 
that you know, just kind of get bundled together into what they called, oh my God, for, you know, OMI, God. Which, funny story, is so they gave me the exclusive on this. Like, I was the first journalist that they talked to about this. The blog post hadn't gone live, you know, all this kind of thing. And as they're describing this vulnerability to me and, you know, showing me like a proof of concept and we're kind of working through the implications, when I got to the part about I made them confirm that it, it binds on all interfaces, which I mean, later I spun up my own Azure VM and I tested all this stuff directly, right? But at the moment, I'm just like asking them questions and I asked them about the binding. They They have... In their proof of concept, like slide deck, you can see a netstat being run on one of these Azure VMs with OMI running. And so I see it, you know, bound on TCP 5986, but it's bound on star colon 5986, right? Like all interfaces. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I need you to back up to the last slide and confirm that this binds to all interfaces on the system. They're like, yeah. And I'm like, so if you have a public interface on your VM, it's bound to the public interface. And they're like, yeah. And I said, oh my God. And the whole team started laughing because they hadn't told me the, the code name they'd given this set of vulnerabilities yet, but it was, oh my God. Anyway, like I said, the Azure firewall by default will not allow any traffic in unless you specifically write a firewall rule to allow that traffic in. But there's gotta be a lot of folks, you know, that were just like, ah, I'm managing my own firewall my own way. Like, you know, maybe with the, you know, Linux VM's internal firewall and just kind of trust it and say, allow all and I'll worry about it on the inside. There's, yeah, definitely lots of that going on. Yeah. And, you know, even if it wasn't for the fact that it bound to a network socket and it was just the Unix socket version, that's still the local privilege escalation, right? It means if you're yes. a user of any kind on the machine, you can be like, hey, thing, run this command for me. Oh, now my user is root. Yeah, correct. And because it's so freaking easy to exploit, I mean, we're not, we're not talking about a buffer overflow or anything, right? Because it's so easy to exploit, a really savvy attacker might even choose not to visibly root the machine at all because they know they can just run the command as root whenever they want to. It's, it's just such a push button thing. But I got sidetracked and I didn't actually answer Joe's question, which was about Microsoft dragging their feet about awarding the, the, the bounty on this thing, right? So it's four total vulnerabilities, you know, bundled into this, uh, you know, oh my God code name. And when Wiz reported it to Microsoft, Microsoft said, oh, okay, thank you. We see that's a problem. And uh, they immediately patched the code in their own GitHub repository where it lives. But they said, we can't pay you a bounty because this is out of scope for Azure management. And Wiz is like, wait, 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 what? What do you mean out of scope for Azure management? Like, you know, you, you, you click logging in the Azure UI and it installs that service. That's Azure management. And they're like, no, this is an open source problem. <laughs> it's like, okay, okay, wait, 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 wait. First of all, you deployed it from your web interface. That means for these purposes, you freaking own it. It's a problem in your system. Second of all, yes, it has an open source license and it lives on GitHub and you theoretically accept contributions from other people, but it didn't begin life as an open source project. Microsoft designed this thing and then chucked it over the wall in 2012. Since 2012, when they chucked it over the wall and, you know, put it on GitHub, it's had a whopping total of 24 contributors. And the majority of those are Microsoft employees based in Redmond, even just going by contributor count. And when you look at the contributors that actually have made significant numbers of commits to the project, there's only two or three, all of whom, again, are Microsoft employees in Redmond. So, like, I don't care how you slice it. This is Microsoft's baby. 
Well, and I think one of the things that's most pernicious about this particular thing is that people don't know that this service is there, right? Like it's just gets bootstrapped on their instance when they check some box in the web UI, not really a connection you normally make when you think about software on Linux. I think the other problem was it's not actually managed by the local package manager. And so normal updates aren't going to update it. It sort of is and sort of isn't. I'm guessing it probably depends on the distro a bit too. Possibly, yeah. I mean, I was looking at, an, I, I spun up an Ubuntu VM to do, you know, my own independent verification and I found a WA Linux agent is kind of the source package for it. And that actually is deployed from uh, Azure's local Ubuntu repository, but that doesn't configure it. All the configuration, you know, kind of happens after the fact. I don't know all the hairy details, but... It's actually, according to Wiz, and I believe according to Microsoft, it's a pretty touchy package to mess with. Like if you attempt to configure it yourself from the command line, you're liable to break all the Azure management things that it got installed to do to begin with. And because it's deployed in different ways by different Azure services, that also means it's kind of ugly to do a security update on for already deployed VMs because the upgrade process is going to look a little different depending on whether you deployed it for distributed logging or deployed it for remote management or just deployed it for metrics or what. And it's also, it's this isn't only an Azure problem. I don't know how many people out there decided it would be a good idea to use Microsoft System Center to manage their on or off-premises Linux VMs. But if you've done a Windows Server 2019 or up install, you know that, you know, on a first login, when it brings up the uh, local server manager, it also throws up, you know, kind of a little ad dialogue. It's like, you know, hey, check out System Center to manage like all your Windows and Linux machines. This is what the cool kids are doing. And System Center also deploys OMI. Yeah. And like Joe was saying earlier, the timeline of this is kind of interesting. You know, the Wiz team originally reported these four vulnerabilities to Microsoft on June 1st. They confirmed one of the four on July 12th, that being basically six weeks later. Yeah, and as of September the 13th, deploying a new VM in Azure would deploy the old version of OMI. So it gets reported six weeks later, Microsoft starts saying, oh yeah, those are actually vulnerabilities. And then a month later, they're like, oh, we pushed some fixes to GitHub. And then six weeks later, oh, we've officially released the patches and then an advisory is another week after that. Yeah. Again, as of September 13th, the day before Patch Tuesday, that was when I deployed a new Azure VM and verified, yep, this is still the old rootable OMI because, oh, hey, watch this. I just dropped a file, you know, in the root file system as root from my machine here in South Carolina. I feel like this wasn't handled with as much seriousness as it needed to be just because of how exploitable it is. Like like you were saying, like buffer overflows and so on, often it takes a bit of luck and chaining some stuff together to actually be able to get root. This is, you craft the message and it works 100% of the time. It's the equivalent of, if you remember back in you know the Windows 95 and Windows 98 days, theoretically you had to log into the machine, but if you hit escape, you just got the desktop mm -hmm. because it turned out that password was only for network authentication, not local. That's basically what this was. I mean, you just, you know, say, nah, not gonna, to the username and password partners. Oh, okay, you must be root then. This is fine. I do want to be clear, you know, Joe had asked about Microsoft dragging their feet about paying. They did eventually pay with a combined bounty, $75,000 for the four vulnerabilities. So this is not a case of Microsoft never did pay these folks. They did, but eh, it should not have been that difficult. Really should not. And it shouldn't have taken that long to look at and so on. 
No, it should not. And to Alan's point, you know, about it taking a long time to address the problem and, you know, not getting enough oversight, whatever. I just like to point out again that this service, which at a minimum is on the majority of Azure VMs, has a whopping total of 24 contributors ever in nine years on GitHub. My own project, Synoid, which has been uncharitably, if accurately described as a couple thousand lines of Perl and listens on no sockets and cannot be used to root any machine, no matter what kind of bug I put in it, has more than twice the uh, total contributors, more than twice the forks, almost 10 times the number of stars. Only 225 people have even starred OMI on GitHub. That is nowhere near enough attention for a service that does these things at this scale, again, not only Azure, but also, you know, System Center, any Linux stuff that you manage via System Center also got OMI dumped onto it. This is a, a service that needed way more attention than it's ever gotten. I had never heard of OMI until the Wiz folks, you know, contacted me. And when I Googled it, you know, to see what I could find out about it, what I found out is that basically nobody knew what OMI was unless they'd had a few system crashes and OMI had filled up their VAR partition with core dumps. And when that happened, they'd be like, what's this OMI crap? And why is it filling up my entire file system? Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and TrustRadius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A, create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address, and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Epic, the host of lovely websites like 8chan, Parler, and Gab, has suffered quite an embarrassing leak this week. This is Epic with a K, of course. Yeah, Anonymous. <laughs> There's a name that we haven't heard much from in a while, which, you know, it, we should also mention when when some hacking group calls itself Anonymous, who the heck knows who or what it is? It doesn't necessarily have any connection to any other group that went by that moniker. That's kind of the whole point. With that said, the communication style is <laughs> very much like, you know, 4chan B from back in the old days, you know, derived they put up a torrent of 180 some odd gigs of what they say is basically all Epic data from the birth of Epic until today. And I have not yet gotten a full copy of the torrent and had a chance to directly analyze it. But um, I've had quite a few samples of it shared with me that certainly appear to be quite valid. And just in case you still weren't sure, like, can we believe this or not? Because, of course, you know, the CEO of Epic, uh, one Rob Monster, immediately went to Twitter to say, we have not been breached. You know, this is garbage. You know, you're going to believe these hackers on steroids. So they changed one of his knowledge based articles <laughs> to just an obvious, again, 4chan B style lols troll. So, uh, yeah, Epic got breached. 
Well, it's kind of been a, a pretty bad breach. It, like this wasn't just a bunch of their documents. This is obviously enough to get administrator access to their knowledge base and change articles too. So it's a pretty thorough hacking too. Again, we're talking about 180 gigs of data, which according to the uh, the hacking group that published it includes all user information about every domain that's ever been registered through Epic. And that's just one part of it. Keeping in mind that Epic's entire business model is, you know, hosting shady shit that cannot get hosting anywhere else. That's kind of significant when you say, okay, every domain that ever got registered through these folks, here's who done it. Here's the actual username and, you know, payment details and the whole nine. Exactly. I'm sure there's uh, quite a few sites that people would like to know who's the person paying for that. Yeah. And now again, uh, it's, it's still very early days for this dump. Nothing I say should be construed as me personally verifying the legitimacy of the dump. It does appear legitimate. And uh, some of the things that I have seen shared in samples from the dump are pretty shocking in that, you know, they expose people with a squeaky clean Republican image as opposed to, you know, the really nasty Republican image. But, you know, the folks that look because like there, there's there's folks who are on the right wing side of politics and there are like, you know, horrible, hateful fringe people. Right. And there's a lot of folks that have a, a fairly significant presence as what appears to be, you know, pretty decent, respectable folks who happen to be on the conservative side of politics who have registered a lot of domains through Epic for other people who are not as squeaky clean as they are. As I was saying before we started, shitlords. Going again with the whole, like, how do you characterize all this? So a lot of the folks that are on Epic can, you know, very easily be categorized as shitlords. You know, they're they're just the dime a dozen assholes you see on Twitter, right? And it's a mistake to think that every shitlord is like an actual Nazi. With that said... Epic is also known for hosting actual, no shit, swastika toten, uh, Heil Hitlering Nazis. That includes the Daily Stormer, who at one point was hosted on Epic. That also includes a site that I won't name because I'm not sure how prominent it actually is that I discovered by doing a simple Nmap scan of the same net block that used to host 8chan on Epic. And it was just a no kidding, like, you know, Hitler and a giant banner image, like, you know, the site for all your information about national socialism, join the fight. Like, I mean, there's no crypto anything about it. It's freaking Nazis. So this is going to be very embarrassing then for a lot of people. Yeah, I think it probably will. I think it's it's very early to talk about what the eventual impact of that dump is going to be again, assuming it's all valid. But I mean, even the people that, you know, we know for a fact are on Epic. They're such shady characters, you know, Rob monster himself got involved in a thread on Twitter with one of the first people to mention that, you know, this, this hacking group had said that they, they dumped all the data. Uh, the torrent hadn't even gone live yet. And this guy was saying, you know, Hey, you know, the torrent's not live yet, but you know, supposedly this happened, you know, we'll, we'll keep you up to date on it. And, uh, Rob Monster himself got involved like in that guy's Twitter thread and um, he starts talking trash about the guy and uh, saying, you know, oh, well, you know, I know that a page that's hosted on Epic, like, you know, outs you as a pedophile or, or whatever. And yeah, that that site on Epic is run by this guy uh, to 
I don't even know how much I want to like name these people's names, you know, to get more sunshine on it. But uh, Joey, you're either going to know who that is right off the bat or you're not. He has a site that is basically nothing but doxing left wing people, largely with fabricated information. Apparently, literally everybody he doesn't agree with is a pedophile. And, you know, he supposedly has proof in his giant pink text everywhere, you know, garbage page. Well, yeah, this dude is a convicted felon with a, you know, rap list for stalking and, and, uh, you know, all kinds of harassment as long as your arm, like that's an Epic customer that Rob monster doesn't even make any bones about hosting. Okay. This episode is sponsored by CBT nuggets training for it professionals or anyone looking to build it skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins and sign up for a seven day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals and will check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash two five admins. Let's do some free consulting then. But first, just a quick thank you to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join them, you can go to 2.5admins.com slash support. And remember, for $5 or more per month, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, so check it out. And if you want to send in your feedback or questions, you can send them to show at 2.5admins.com. Another perk of being a patron is that you get to skip the queue for free consulting, which is exactly what Michael did. He said, Even as a Linux user for decades, I'm struggling with parts of FreeBSD which seem to be cake for everyone else. I'm trying to correctly set up my home TrueNAS installation to have properly isolated non-root users to support receiving ZFS backups. Jails still make little sense to me. Where should I be putting the user home directories? Should I be adding storage dedicated for this? Should they be part of the pool itself? If I grant my user on ACL to a dataset, it doesn't seem to work since they don't own the whole pool, only allowed for root and I will see an enter sudo password prompt when trying to do a ZFS send from another machine. I currently have everything working using Sanoid and Syncoid on my source Linux boxes, but it's all using the TrueNAS root login to do the backups, and I know that that's not right. If I can understand jails, then I can possibly get Sanoid working on the TrueNAS box to get snapshot management under control as well. Are there any resources you can recommend as an introduction? Everything I find online seems to assume a full understanding of BSD. I feel like I'm learning two huge concepts at once, and the materials for one assume a large understanding of the other. I think jails are a red herring here. I think what he's really looking for is just a ZFS user delegation, which Alan is more expert in than I am. So Alan, take it away. Yeah, so you mentioned ACLs, but those are file system permissions, and that's kind of unrelated. So on both Linux and FreeBSD, when you want a non-root user to be able to do operations with ZFS, you have to use ZFS allow and define this user is allowed to do these things, whether that's create a snapshot or create a new data set or uh, send or receive and and so on. Does uh, Sanoid and Syncoid provide a list of what permissions you need to use it? 
you need to be able to ZFS list and you need to be able to, you know, send and receive as appropriate, depending on which side you're on. Yeah. So in general, listing is allowed for everyone, but yeah, you'll need snapshot and then send and receive and receive, I think automatically involves create, which involves mount or whatever. But if you look at the FreeBSD handbook, there's a section in the ZFS chapter specifically about doing rootless uh, ZFS replication. And it has a list of the permissions that you need to allow. I wrote that years and years ago. I don't remember the list directly off the top of my head. It's all scripted and, and stuff that I do nowadays. So yeah, you know, TrueNAS is not really meant to be used this way where you're adding your own users and extra software like Sanoid and Syncoid to it, but you can make it work. And as far as home directory goes, the, the user you're creating for this will have a home directory, but it likely won't contain anything more than the .ssh directory with the, you know, the list of keys that are allowed to log in as that user. You know, it won't really need anything else. You'll just have the data sets which you've delegated with ZFS allow that Syncoid will be able to write to uh, and, you know, keep adding more snapshots to and so on. Uh, if you want a step-by-step -step guide to doing this part of it, uh, the easiest thing is probably the uh, FreeBSD Mastery ZFS book you can buy on Amazon written by myself and Michael W. Lucas. And it starts assuming you only know how hard drives work and what partitions are and builds all the stuff you need to be able to do this type of stuff. And it's almost all applicable to Linux as well, except for the stuff about how you partition disks, because that's just different commands on, on BSD than Linux. Okay, Nick says, I've been thinking recently about setting up several VMs for my daily needs one to be my desktop, and a few more for specific tasks like banking. Do you think that using a VM as a desktop compared to bare metal has any significant drawbacks that I'm missing? And second, what would be some best practices for maintaining the VMs? I guess regular snapshots and backing up of the image itself are a must. Something else? Probably depends a bit on what you were trying to do. Like I know some people that are paranoid about accessing certain sites like banking and so on would have a VM, have a snapshot, do their banking and then roll back to the snapshot so that any cookies created during the banking are undone. And then, you know, you do have to make a new snapshot every once in a while if you install or when you install your security updates and so on. But as a way to have a forget me kind of desktop, that can be useful. And performance wise, if you configure it right, it's pretty close to bare metal, isn't it? It can be. Uh, you know, you can do more complicated things if you're really worried about the performance. I've, I've seen people do with containers uh, and running the browser from the container and so on, but that's a bit more complicated too. I guess it depends why you're deciding you want to have your desktop in a VM. It's not necessarily a bad idea, and I can see having some advantages to this VM is just set up for this and it always works and it's not going to keep changing and I can do whatever I need to do on my desktop and still know that this one's going to work. But it'd be interested in understanding the use cases more, I guess. Once you start going down this rabbit hole of, you know, saying I want to containerize all the things and isolate all the things and I want my, you know, desktop to this and that and the other, it might be worth looking at one of the, I don't mean this pejoratively, but weirder distributions that have, you know, gone thoroughly down that rabbit hole like cubes. If that sounds interesting, but you haven't heard of it before, that's cubes with a Q, Q-U-B-E-S. Okay, Jordan writes, I'm currently using my YubiKey to securely store my SSH key, which I use to SSH into my home servers and also my Linode servers. I was wondering if you guys feel that using a YubiKey to store SSH keys is secure, and also if using the same SSH key for multiple servers is secure if they're stored on the YubiKey. 
So in general, the YubiKey is probably more secure than just having SSH keys floating around in your home directory, even with a password on it. You know, the YubiKey is better for that. In the end, it's about as secure as how secure the physical YubiKey is. As for using the same key for multiple servers, if it's practical to have separate keys, it's better, but it's not that hard of a requirement. It mostly comes down to if the key does get compromised somehow, uh, you plug it into an infected machine or something, it controls the scope of how many things the attacker gets access to in that case. So maybe it's a good idea to have a separate key for the machine that has the backups of the primary machine so that if they get one key, they don't get the other key. But beyond that, what's practical for you is usually more secure because if you do something that's too much of a pain, you'll find ways around it and do something that's less secure. Yeah, the biggest thing that I would caution people to consider is just like Alan said, you know, you really have to think about the physical security. If you're prone to leaving your keys, you know, random places and searching hours to find them, the UB key honestly might not be for you. I was like, I don't keep my SSH keys on, you know, anything that small and that portable. I don't, I don't want to lose it. My SSH keys, they're on like a workstation that I really care about. And there's a separate SSH key on a laptop that I really care about. And those two are different keys, but they all can get into the same machines. The reason there's a separate key on the workstation and on the laptop is so that if I lose control of one, I can revoke just that one key without having to destroy the other one. Because the other thing to consider with the YubiKey is if that's your copy of your SSH key and you don't have it anywhere else, if you just lose the YubiKey or it breaks, you know, uh, sometimes you got a little dongle hanging out of your laptop, it can easily get broken uh, when somebody bumps it or something, then, you know, have you locked yourself out of all of those machines? Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Ressington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.